Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. He's Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. And we're pretty much just spitting mad about everything today. We've got three bad martinis for you. Some of it involves President Trump. Some of it involves kowtowing to China. And some of it involves uh, elections coming up soon. We have one very important piece of good news for you, though, and that's that we're sponsored by ZipRecruiter today. ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. Much more on the great work ZipRecruiter does in just a moment. So, Jim, let's start with our first bad martini. Here's CBS This Morning explaining a sudden change in policy, as they term it, although I think this is a change in policy that actually is the reason we don't still have our original defense secretary in this administration. Nonetheless, here's CBS This Morning. In a major U.S. policy shift this morning, American troops are pulling back to make way for Turkey's planned invasion of part of northern Syria. Video out this morning shows American forces leaving an area along Turkey's border. Turkey is targeting U.S.-backed Kurdish fighters that have been key American allies in the fight against ISIS. The abrupt change follows a phone call last night between President Trump and Turkey's president. And so now we go to the Twitter sphere. President Trump with a thread this morning saying that ISIS is 100% defeated. Uh, then he goes into a long rant about how Europe wouldn't take their ISIS fighters back. And basically he says he wants to do away with endless wars. And if we have to, we'll go crush ISIS again, even though they're 7,000 miles away. One of his most staunch allies on most things these days, certainly wasn't during the campaign of 2016, but Lindsey Graham, uh, now the Judiciary Chairman in the Senate, is very upset with this, says, I don't know all the details regarding President Trump's decision in northern Syria, but he says if the reports are accurate, it ensures an ISIS comeback, forces the Kurds to align with Assad and Iran, destroys Turkey's relationship with our Congress, and will be a stain on America's honor for abandoning the Kurds. So, uh, Jim, it, it's always frustrating to know when to leave. But when the Turks literally say, we want you to leave so we can come in and kill the people that basically bailed you out while everybody else was clueless and fighting ISIS, and then we just do it. Yeah, this is a circumstance where you could see a theoretical case for what the president wants to do. You presumably would want to do this in consultation with our allies. You presumably would want to probably do this as a gradual drawdown of troops, not all of a sudden, all at once. Um, it's kind of hard to see what U.S. interest would be served by Turkey coming in and attacking a uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga who are on our side uh, fighting against ISIS. The other thing is that, you know, if even if you're, you want to say we want to do this, we got to end the forever war and all this usual arguments we get from the, uh, the defenders of this administration when it comes to, you know, quasi-isolationist moves, First of all, I noticed, um, Greg, we sent more troops to Saudi Arabia last weekend. I'm sorry, last month. I, I didn't hear any more people complaining about that. Uh, if your attitude is the president is always right, you basically have to justify we're going to withdraw our troops from northern Syria, where they were kind of acting as a buffer between the Turks and the Kurds, and we're going to send them to Saudi Arabia. So we're getting less involved with the Middle East in one area, but we're getting more involved in the Middle East in the other area. And before anybody says, Jim, come on, that's... You're comparing getting troops out of harm's way in one area, and, and you know, U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia aren't in harm's way, as if the Iranians had not just bombed the uh, oil uh, uh, refineries and processing facilities there in Saudi Arabia. Erdogan has been pushing Turkey in a more increasingly vehemently anti-American position for a long time. 
I don't understand why this president thinks he can trust him. I don't understand why this president seems to think giving Kurt the Turkey a free hand in uh, northern Syria to attack the Kurds is is a good thing. Um, he's getting a fairly broad bipartisan uh, wave of criticism over this. If you want to argue some of the Democrats are being opportunistic and that these some of these Democrats are every bit as isolationist, fine. You can make that argument. It doesn't make the decisions any right any much better. But the other thing which is really perhaps most frustrating about this is that it sounds like, according to, you know, Fox News and otherwise very, you know, Trump-friendly media sources, the Pentagon was completely blindsided by this. And you're not supposed to blindside your own military apparatus with your decision-making. This appears like it was an, an erratic, off-the-cuff, sudden decision by the president. He did not take any of the preparatory steps, even if you thought this was a good idea. And by the way, I don't. Um, and I, it looks like, you know, from the, the folks like Lindsey Graham, it is an all-out push to see if they can get the president to change his mind. Um, right before we came on air, uh, Greg, there were new tweets from the president in which he pledged that uh, he could absolutely destroy Turkey's uh, economy if he wanted to. So that's reassuring. <laughs> As I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I and my great and unmatched wisdom by the way, he used the term in my great and unmatched wisdom. This is not me making fun of him. This is not me. I'm not pulling an Adam Schiff here. This is actually right there in the tweet. Considered to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. I've done before. Did he? Anyway. They must, <laughs> with Europe and others, watch over the ISIS prisoners. It's deeply, deeply frustrating to see that the president seems to be winging it on really vital decisions in terms of the use of military force and uh, foreign policy. Jim, this is the second time we've pretty much turned our back on the Kurds after they've done yeoman's work in fighting for rational policy and policy we would like to see in the Middle East. Chances are in that region, things are going to go bad again. Just a hunch. Uh, not sure when, but I'm guessing it <laughs> might, might just happen someday. We might need their help. We might need their help again someday. If you're the Kurds, why would you ever help unless it's just to maintain your own existence? I was going to say, we you know, uh, left the Kurds in Iraq holding the bag. We've heard left the Kurds in Syria holding the bag. By the way, it, you know, continuing this, um, his, his series of tweets, this is still going on as we're, uh, uh, as we're having our conversation here, Greg. Oh, good. Uh, watching over a quagmire, spending big dollars to do so. When I took over, our military was totally depleted. Now it is stronger than ever before. Endless and ridiculous wars are ending. By the way, if they're ending, they're not really endless wars. Um, we'll be focused on the big picture, knowing we can always go back and blast, blast in all capital letters. So this is the first time I've seen the commander-in-chief of the United States justify a withdrawal by saying we can always just go back again if we need to. If you think you might need to go back, don't leave in the first place. Or as you said in the beginning, at least uh, exit in a responsible fashion so you don't have to bring everybody back if you do need to go back and blast them. This is... So maddening on a number of levels, and I know the Tucker Carlsons of the world are going to love this, and they're going to blast the the neocons and so forth. But it just makes me wonder, uh, in addition to inviting the Taliban to Camp David and his already public comments about North Korea, whether John Bolton saw something like this happening and just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, also, you notice we got a ton of really damaging leaks about this administration's national security decision-making process and calls to foreign leaders and stuff like that right after Bolton got fired. Don't make John Bolton angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. Never mess with the walrus, Greg. (laughs) Got big tusks. All right. 
Well, John Bolton, I'm sure, will land on his feet somewhere now that he's back in the private sector. So I don't think he needs ZipRecruiter necessarily. But uh, if you need more specifically to hire someone, ZipRecruiter is absolutely the way to go. Because, look, hiring can be a slow process if you're not using the right methods. There's a great example of this guy named Dylan Miskowitz. He's the COO of Cafe Altura, and he needed to hire a director of coffee. Doesn't that sound like a great job? My wife would love to be the director of coffee somewhere. (laughs) So Dylan runs an organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants through the normal processes of some of these other sites and uh, just the the regular way of uh, soliciting resumes and so forth. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. Director of coffee. I love that title. With results like that at ZipRecruiter, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Three Martini Lunch listeners can now try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash martini, M-A-R-T-I-N-I, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right. Major turnover by the NBA as we go to our second martini here. I don't know if this is a traveling violation. I guess it is because they love to play these exhibition games in in China. And uh, this guy who's the general manager of the Houston Rockets. I follow the NBA. I'm not a psycho fan of the NBA like David French is. But uh, (laughs) uh, the general manager of the uh, Houston Rockets is a guy named Daryl Morey. And uh, as the preseason gets going here for the NBA, he had a recent tweet that's now deleted that said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And now everybody's apologizing because the Chinese are upset. This was the consulate general spokesperson in Houston attacking that original tweet, saying we are deeply shocked by the erroneous comments on Hong Kong made by Mr. Daryl Morey, general manager of the Houston Rockets. We have lodged representations and expressed strong dissatisfaction with the Houston Rockets and urged the latter to correct the error and take immediate concrete measures to eliminate the adverse impact. There's also condemnation from the Chinese Basketball Association, saying the Chinese Basketball Association has expressed strong opposition to the remarks and will suspend communication and cooperation with the Houston Rockets club. Meanwhile, the Rockets' owner has groveled and apologized. James Harden has apologized. Maury himself says he didn't mean to offend anyone. I don't think he ever actually said he was sorry here, but he's, he's uh, hoping the people aren't upset uh, or aren't offended. So he's basically apologized here. And, of course, the NBA, the kings of the social justice warriors in professional sports, are groveling at the feet of China as well. Here's the NBA statement. We recognize that the views expressed by Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey have offended so many of our friends and fans in China, which is regrettable. While Daryl while has made it clear that his tweet does not represent the Rockets or the NBA, the values of the league support individuals educating themselves and sharing their views on matters important to them. We have a great respect for the history and culture of China and hope that sports in the NBA can be used as a unifying force to bridge cultural divides and bring people together. It turns out that the Chinese version of that statement was a little bit harsher towards uh, Mr. Mori. 
Jim, you know how bad this is? Even Beto's right. Beto says the, <laughs> the, the only thing the NBA should be apologizing for is their blatant prioritization of profits over human rights. What an embarrassment. He's actually finding common cause with his Senate opponent from last year, Ted Cruz. So how badly is the uh, NBA dribbling this off their foot? I suppose the NBA might be kicking themselves and, and you know, cursing their luck. But what's, what we're seeing here is a, you could say, a long-simmering conflict between America's economic desires and its values. And this isn't the first time this has come up in the context of China. In fact, it was you know, Rehan Salam who wrote it that, remember, you know, Greg, you and I are on the same age. Remember in college, free Tibet was a big deal. Sure. Yeah, Richard the bumper stickers. You saw the, every once in a while you'd see rallies on campus. It was a big deal that China had effectively taken over Tibet and was steadily religiously oppressing it, politically oppressing it. There wasn't no freedom of speech, et cetera. And kind of year by year, bit by bit, it seemed like Richard Gere was the only guy who still cared about that and still was making a stink about this. America, as you frequently hear, you know, China has a billion people and all kinds of American companies think, gee, you know, if everybody in China bought three of our product, that would be three billion new sales in a year. You know, kind of they want access to that market. The Chinese government controls access to that market. So they're more than willing to play like the Chinese government's rules. And this means a lot of uh, stolen intellectual property and, and things like that. Things that by and large are as unfortunate as they are, are generally things that hurt the company operating in China. And if they think it's worth the price, fine, whatever. Most Americans don't give this more than a moment's thought. What we're seeing now in Hong Kong is probably the closest China has come to a repeat of Tiananmen Square. Uh, there was you know, some pretty vehement anti-Chinese sentiment in this country around Tiananmen Square. They look like a bunch of butchers, the butchers of Beijing. And I think it was um, Bill Clinton back in 1992 who said that President George H.W. Bush had sold out American values and that he was going to stand up to China. And of course, then he immediately gave China most favored nation trading status once he was in office. What we see in Hong Kong is brutality. They now are enforcing this new anti-mask rule where basically if you're wearing a mask on the street, they just assume you're a criminal. They assume that you're one of the protesters. They assume you're a troublemaker. They can arrest you. There's videos of people being tackled and thrown down to the street and treated brutally, et cetera, et cetera. The NBA wants to expand into China. There are a billion people there. There are a lot of people who could buy NBA jerseys and basketballs and uh all kinds of other officially licensed products. NBA sees profits over there. The question is, so what do they want to do? So they're now in a situation where they, you know, don't want to irk the Chinese government. And one general manager of one team had the audacity to go out and make one tweet saying we stand with Hong Kong. And of course, as all fragile dictatorships and authoritarian regimes do, the Chinese government responded with the fury of a thousand suns going supernova. Now, the NBA, which is constantly talking to us about social justice, the NBA, which is constantly talking to us about police brutality, Greg, I suppose we should be impressed. The NBA has finally found some cops that it can support in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, it's just a, they've been put in a situation where they're, they're, there's no way to stand by the protesters in Hong Kong and maintain the, the current level of access to the Chinese market. They're going to have to choose. And they are choosing. They're choosing to stand with the Beijing they're choosing to abandon Hong Kong and every one of them, everybody associated with the NBA should have this thrown in their faces from now until the day that they die. Because in the end, when push came to shove, they love money a lot more than they love freedom. But Jim, it's not just the NBA that doesn't get it with China. We just talked last week about how the 70th anniversary of the, the Chinese revolution, President Trump's out there on Twitter going, hey, happy anniversary, happy 70 years. That's awesome. Good job. Not completely ignoring the repression and the, the starvation and the murder of tens of millions of people over the years. 
And uh, it's the same on the left. Uh, firing line, not the Bill Buckley version. It's Margaret Hoover. But she was actually pretty tough on former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg a, a week or two back. Uh, he was talking about climate change, of course. And she says, well, China's a big problem with this, uh, aren't they? And he's like, no, 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 they're making strides. They still got work to do, but they're making strides. And he says the reason that China's making strides on climate is because the people are demanding it. And the Chinese government has to respond to the people. Listen to this. The the Communist Party wants to stay in power in China, and they listen to the public. When the public says, I can't breathe the air, Xi Jinping is not a dictator. He has to satisfy his constituents, or he's not going to survive. He's not a dictator? No, he has has a constituency to to, to, uh, um, uh, answer to. He doesn't have a vote. He doesn't have a democracy. He doesn't, that he's doesn't not mean he can survive if his, if his advisors mean, if, gave him... Is the check on him just a revolution? Yeah, I can have a revolution. Nobody, well, then, no government survives without the will of the majority of its people. Okay? Did he not pay attention to the last hundred years, Jim? <laughs> yeah, first of all, kudos to that interviewer, because you almost never see that kind of pushback. And you can see that little bit of indignation in Bloomberg of like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this woman doesn't get it. At the most technical sense, yeah, I suppose that at some point the communist government of uh, of China, or or I guess you could now call it state capitalist, the the people, you know, the, the authoritarians in Beijing, if they were to like stop paying the military, then yes, they'd lose control. If they were to um, uh, have all the nuclear plants go into radiation meltdowns, then yeah, you'd probably have eventually an uprising against them or something like that. But generally, authoritarian regimes do not are not run on consensus. <laughs> They're not run on, hey, let's just do what everybody likes. And it'll, dissent is not a big deal in is, is not something that's really embraced in authoritarian regimes. Bloomberg may kind of sort of have a point in the sense that it's so, if you're an authoritarian regime and at some point you oh, don't listen to complaints about corruption or uh, if, if people are keeling over because the air quality is so bad or something like that then yeah, eventually you'll have some sort of uprising, or at least you increase the odds of there being some sort of popular uprising against you. But it's a lot very tough to pull that stuff off because they're authoritarian regimes and generally they have all the guns. Um, I think one of the things that's been deeply frustrating, in fact, you want to talk about the big uh, argument between populists and the elites going on in our politics for the last 20, 30 years. People seeing what they wanted to see in China, and most notably, like I said, that giant market, right? That idea of, I am going to get rich selling stuff to China. And some Americans have. It's been very good for Boeing. It's been very good for some of our grain exports. You know, there are some people who, and that, that's great. And, you know, do we like Chinese products? Well, we sure as heck buy a lot of them from, you know, all the stuff made in China, I suppose. But in the end, a lot of it's being made by, uh, if not slave labor, then let's say near slave labor, environmental standards that we would not tolerate here in the United States. Uh, no unionization, no right to organize, no right to free speech. This is a fundamentally unfree country, even if it's moving in a more capitalist direction. We can't, you know, we've had blinders on. We've been trying to deny the nature of this regime. And the nature of the regime is that it's authoritarian. It does, it, it allows you a certain amount of dissent. And then once you cross that line, boom, you disappear in the middle of the night. That's what terrifies the people of Hong Kong. And when, again, pushes come to shove and the NBA, and for that matter, I suppose Mike Bloomberg doesn't want to stand with them. They want to find, oh, clearly there's some way we can arrange some sort of deal so that we keep making our profits. 
All right. If you're not thoroughly depressed enough, let's go to our uh, third bad martini here. And, uh, Jim, it's an odd-numbered year, which means that uh, Election Day only matters in a few states in terms of statewide legislative races this year. And Virginia, where we happen to live, conveniently for this discussion, uh, is one of them. And it's not looking good for Republicans. I mean, it's been drifting blue for a while now. Uh, President Obama won it in 2008 and 2012. And other than the uh, illustrious Bob McDonnell, a Republican has not won the governorship in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia since 1997. And now we've got legislative elections coming up. We've got the Democrat Ralph Northam, who's not up. He's got two years left in his term. Uh, but the uh, Republicans have very narrow majorities in both the House of Delegates. I believe that's 5148. I think there's one vacancy. There's 100 seats there. And it's 2119 in the Senate. And right now, things are not looking good, uh, according to a new poll from Christopher Newport University, which is in Virginia. First of all, we've got voter enthusiasm problems. Uh, Democrats have a significant advantage over Republicans on enthusiasm, 62 to 49. 84% of Democrats say they will definitely vote, compared to 74% of Republicans and 75% of independents, who are trending Democrat anyway. Democrats lead Republicans by 13 points on the generic ballot test. Voters prefer Democrats control the General Assembly by a span of 53 to 37. This You'll love this one, Jim. Northam's approval rating is back up to 51% and are fairly optimistic about the state of the Commonwealth. President Trump's approval is only at 37 percent. And in a survey largely conducted before the Ukrainian uh, mess unfolded, there were already 49 percent of Virginians who wanted him impeached. Uh, also, very lopsided numbers on gun control, health care, minimum wage, abortion and other topics. For example, 68 percent are glad they expanded Medicaid in Virginia. And also, let's see, 51 percent think tuition ought to be free at public colleges and universities, for example. So uh, this Commonwealth is getting bluer and bluer and bluer to the point where it's almost looking indigo, Jim. Yeah. And the only, you know, asterisk or, you know, way we can say maybe this this poll is, is you know, overstating how bad things are. Uh, G. Elliot Morris, who's a data journalist for The Economist, looked at this and says, wait a second, wait a second. This new poll in Virginia is nearly 70 percent college educated. That's, he argues that's way off, and no wonder the sample is Democrats by you know, plus 13. The weighted number should be closer to 40% with a bachelor's degree or higher. He argues don't share polls that don't weight by education. You know, if, if you're the Republican, that, that could very well be true. His logic makes sense to me. That having been said, I would not want, if I'm a Republican in Virginia, I don't want to base, <laughs> I, I'd still like to do better. <laughs> I still would be a little, I, I still would be using this as a, uh, uh, to light a fire under my, my volunteers and my door knockers and my phone bankers and, and all those kind of folks. Um, I must say, you know, here in uh, Authenticity Woods in, in Fairfax County, I'm not hearing a lot. I'm not seeing a lot about local elections. We are now a month away from Election Day. I realize state legislative elections aren't going to be as big a deal. And, yeah, we've got impeachment going on. You know, I, I kind of wonder if this if the, the Virginia, Demo Virginia Republican plan assumed a normal political environment. And I don't think we're in a normal political environment. I think if you're a Democrat in Virginia, you are fired up because, you know, even though your state legislature has nothing to do with impeachment, you're just every day there's something new from Trump that makes you really mad. And you're you can't wait to go out there and uh, we're going to finally go. And you're not all that worried about Ralph Northam. You're not all that worried about uh, any of the other scandals in state governments. Maybe you decided you like Ralph Northam a little more because, you know, he kind of reminds you of uh, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> You know, there's just this um, this shade to the both of them, this hue. There's, you know, they're both men of many colors. You know, 
deeply frustrating poll result. It's only one poll, but I can't say we've seen a lot of other polls that are looking all that great for Virginia Republicans either. You feel like you're hearing so little about the Virginia Republican candidates running for state legislature. I, I kind of wonder if just the political environment, environment makes it almost impossible for them to break through. Prince William County, where I live, still has a uh, majority of Republicans on the county board. But, uh, Jim, it's like Taya Leone standing on the beach in deep impact. I, I just feel like the wave is coming here. <laughs> it's not a good feeling. And hopefully my instincts are wrong here. But uh, I feel like Northern Virginia is just uh, about to be lost for a very long time. Yeah. So uh, it's a Monday, everybody. <laughs> Happy Monday. It's going to be a great week. Keep your chin up, everyone. Jim, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review, Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We're certainly glad you're with us. And hey, don't forget, if you need to fill that job and you need to fill it fast, do it without any hassle and go to ZipRecruiter, ziprecruiter.com slash martini. And tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.